Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you've ever seen the old movie Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams, I remember I first watched this when I was in high school. Um, I think my high school English teacher actually showed us to us in class, which was a good move because, you know, I was like in 10th grade. I wasn't that interested in literature or poetry at that time. But that movie will intrigue you and kind of invite you in. Uh, And it was uh, certainly intriguing to me. There's this very famous quote in the movie where Robin Williams is talking to the students and and everybody's you know a little disenfranchised with poetry is it really worth our time is it kind of just a, something that we do on the side and he says this he says we don't read and write poetry because it's cute we read and write poetry because we are members of the human race and the human race is filled with passion medicine law business engineering these are all noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life, but poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are the things we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of the cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life, answer that you are here, that life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse, what will your verse be? You know, there's something about that scene and, and that quote and this idea, beauty, love. These things do move us. These things do capture us. They do drive us. And I think that's a good question to ask, why? Why are we so moved by, by beauty? Why are we so moved by story, by the arts, by the visual arts, by music? Why do these things capture us? You know, it's interesting. It's something that the secular world really doesn't have a satisfying answer for. Uh, if you are here today and you're not a believer, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But if you're kind of in a, what I would call like an atheistic or Darwinistic kind of worldview, the, the secular world really can't answer that question. Why is beauty so important to us? It's not practical. It's not functional. Why, do we, why are we people of passion? Why, why do things like love mean so much to us? But it's so central to the human experience. This is interesting. You know what the most valuable objects in the whole world are? What are the most valuable, like, singular objects in the whole world? And the answer is art. They're pieces of art. Like the Mona Lisa, okay? The Mona Lisa. Do you know what this is valued at? $900 million for a piece of paper with color on it, right? How is something like that have such value? And the Mona Lisa is not alone, right? The Mona Lisa is 
among many pieces of art that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The, the raw material is so minimal, yet it's worth so much. Why? Millions of people every year travel to Europe or travel to New York City or travel to Chicago or wherever to go and see and experience art. And again, that's just visual art. All right, what about music, musical art? Last week, we cleaned up 221, the, the building that we are trying to buy, and we got everything out, all these TVs and cords and everything and chairs, and so we were moving everything out of there, and it's kind of hard work, but, you know, we had a blast doing it. You know why? Because Graham had made a really good sound mix, a song mix, and we listened to great music, and, and, and working to that music just made the activity fun. What is that? Why can the arts move us in this kind of way? There, there's an artistic quality of music that can make you laugh, can make you have sorrow, that can make you fall in love. I mean, there's nothing more fun than to fall in love to a good song, right? There's nothing more appropriate in, during a breakup than a sad song, right? One of the things I've said is the, 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 the only thing I don't like about marriage is that I don't get to listen to breakup songs in the way that I used to, you know? I'm just, I'm just too happy in my relationship now, you know? But there's something about that when you're like, your heartache is there and you're like, ah, oh, and there's a song that just meets you. Or you put, that's music. What about movies? It puts a lot of this together, right? Story, visual, music, all coming together in one. There, there is something about the arts that really move us. Lord Fletcher of Saltoon famously wrote, let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. One of the most interesting books that I've read the first part of this year is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you've kind of asked the question of kind of how, how is the decision-making process, how are the values of the day uh, where they are, and, and how have things seemed to move so far away from kind of a normal Western experience to where they are today, this would be a good book for you, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And, and really what Truman, Carl Truman, the author does is he kind of goes through a history of Western philosophy. But how did these ideas, the ideas of Western philosophy, the ideas of Rousseau or the ideas of Freud or the ideas of, of you know, whoever it is, Reef, how did they enter into the common experience. And you know how? You know why? The arts. That's always how it happens. Because very rarely will an indicative statement really change you, right? If I just said some sort of indicative truth statement, it may not change you that much. But the arts, music, story, a visual painting, those things can really move us. They're the way that ideas really make their way into common life. Now, the church has had in church history kind of an interesting relationship with the arts. For a good part of church history, the arts were really important, particularly I'm talking about the visual arts. Music has long been a, a part of or kind of always been a part of church history um, and, and how the, the, the gospel has been proclaimed. But the visual arts have been a part of that story too. 
Uh, if you think of, kind of, for example, the, the Byzantine mosaics or stained glass or the works of painters like da Vinci and Michelangelo, these have been a part of the visual arts. We're a little too soon on these uh, pictures here, but, but I'll get to them. Um, yeah, let's just go black right now. Um, but, the, but the visual arts, they're part of how we told the story of Christ, how we told the story of Scripture. For the most part, for the bulk of church history, Christians could not read, right? Most people could not read. And so people depended on the Word being preached, hearing of the Word, and the seeing of the Word. Now, like a lot of things in Christianity and in God's creation, people have taken the created thing that God gave us as a gift and began to abuse it. They began to manipulate it. And this certainly happened with the arts and particularly the arts in church. So, for example, in the medieval period, again, this was a time when we weren't surrounded by image. These, when people would see a painting or they would see an image, it was incredibly powerful. And, and people began to believe, and, and the messaging around these images was manipulated in such a way that people began to believe that these images had certain power or authority to them. That if you looked at this image of Christ or that you looked at this image of a certain Bible scene or if you were near this relic or whatever it was, that it had power, that it could heal you, that it could bless you, that it could give you life in a certain way. And so people began to become captured by this, and these things only began to be more and more and more abused. Uh, the, the medieval church really became uh, uh, captured or, or uh, enamored by the arts in a certain way that, that ultimately led to great abuse. And, and, and ultimately, this, this launched the Reformation. So now we can get to the picture. So St. Peter's Basilica. Now, if you've ever gone to Rome, now this is an artistic marvel. It, it truly is. If you, you got to go to it and just see it. It's amazing. I mean, even some of the architectural qualities. So like Bernini, the, the architect, you notice the colonnade. I mean, this is just an amazing idea from 500 plus years ago. The colonnade, it's, it's a depiction of the arms of God reaching out in front of the church to grab the church, to bring the church in. And, and, and the church is full of these kind of images and symbolism that's just amazing, that's, that's helpful, that's creative. But of course, this became abused. The, uh, St. Peter's was commissioned in 1506. It actually wouldn't be finished for 120 years, okay? But in 1513, Leo X became the pope. So 1506 it began. It wouldn't be completed until 1626. But in 1513, Leo X became the pope, and he wanted this to be completed in his lifetime. Okay, so it's a very ambitious idea. And in order to get it com completed in his lifetime, he had to raise a lot of money. And so he started doing all these sorts of things. Famously, he sold indulgences, where if you paid a fee to the church, you could get out of purgatory or get out of hell, or you could pay for a loved one to, to move along in purgatory or to get out of purgatory or whatever it was. People began to see the abuse of this. But alongside this, what was going on was the visual arts in the church were also being dramatically abused at this time. Famously, many of you probably know if you've been around church for a time, or the Protestant church in particular, that 
the, the Reformation of the church kind of began on October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther hung the 95 Theses on the castle church doors in Wittenberg. But what you may not know is why did Martin Luther choose October 31st to hang the 95 Thesis on the castle church doors? And the reason is, is November 1st, the next day, All Saints Day, was the only day of the year that the castle church would be open to the common folk. Usually the common folk had to go to the town church. But on November 1st, the castle church, with all of its relics and all of its art, would be opened up, and crowds came from miles around and paid large sums of money to go in the church. And so Luther wanted all of these people, as they were paying money to go in the Catholic church, to see and read his 95 Theses. And of course, this changed the world. Now, the reason I tell you all of this is from the very beginning of the Reformation, the Protestant church has kind of had a weird relationship with the arts. They saw the abuses of the arts and the result or the reaction, I would say, was total iconoclasm. Let's get away from the arts. Let's, let's not, we've seen the abuse of this. Let's totally get rid of anything visual uh, in our worship. Now to the next picture. So this is, a, this is an interesting picture. This is Broadus Chapel. Actually, it's in Southern Seminary where, where Blake and Barrett and I went to school, Jordan. Um, it was actually made to liken the First Baptist Church of Providence, Rhode Island, which was the First Baptist Church in America, okay? Now, this church, I think, the, the First Baptist Church of Providence, Rhode Island, was completed in, I think, 1634. Don't quote me on that. I'm just pulling that from a file that's deep in there somewhere. But I think it was completed in 1634. So what's interesting about this, now, now you can go to the next picture, is St. Peter's and that, you know, the, the thing that this, this building was modeled after were completed at the very same time or, or right around the same time. So you can see in, just in the architecture, just in the visual nature of it, where the kind of two streams of Christendom were going in terms of understanding the visual arts. Now, I kind of give all of this to you. That's your church history lesson of the day. I, I kind of give all of this to you as a bit of an introduction to really what we're trying to do with the Covenant Arts Collective. On one side, we understand what humans do with created things. We are prone to worship them. We are prone to worship the created thing and not the creator. And so we deeply desire, if you notice even like where the pulpit is, notice if you've ever been to kind of a New England type of church, there's this big prominent pulpit right in the middle. It's saying something. It's saying we are sola scriptura, right? We are word driven. We are driven by the word of God. Yeah, and we say to that, yes and amen. We need God's word to refine us, to shape us, to move us. But we, but we also understand that we are creative beings, that God has made us in his image, that he delights in our creation. So can, again, not to be too ambitious here, but can we be the kind of people that fosters a God-glorifying, word-driven understanding of the arts, not to fall into a rejection of beauty and transcendence on one side and not to fall into an abuse of these things on the other side, and this is really a dream of Christ's covenant. Can we rightly understand 
in Christ how we should pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, I, I want to jump back into the passage now. Again, that was kind of an introduction to this whole series. I should have given it last week, but I didn't preach last week. But now I want to jump back into the passage because I think this passage tells us so much about beauty and how we should understand it. So two questions that I think Ecclesiastes 3 helps us with. And the first thing is, why do we long for beauty? Why is it so captivating to us? And then secondly, how do we participate in it? Why do we long for beauty? As Jordan said last week, God is a creative God, right? In the very beginning of time, God existed. Before time existed, God existed. God exists outside of time. He is totally transcendent. He is totally, and I love this, independent. God depends on nothing. God has existed in three persons for all of eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the union of this relationship reflected perfect beauty and perfect harmony and perfect joy and perfect love. The, the church fathers called this, I love this expression, you've heard me say it before, the perichorus, the great dance, right? This, this perfect movement. There's even artistic language used to describe the very nature of God, the great dance, the perfect movement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though three, one, though different, unified, living with one another um, in perfect rhythm and in perfect self-existent harmony. And then, of course, God begins to show himself, to display this beauty in his creation. And it's interesting, the arts are actually the kind of things that help us to understand the nature of this Trinitarian God. For example, how do you have three different notes on a keyboard that when you play them together makes a chord? I think that that is a hint. It's a clue. It's something that God is saying, look, this is how I am. How do you have three colors that come together in a color palette that accent one another, that actually bring out the other colors in the color palette more fully and more completely? What is that? These are little hints. They're little shadows of God communicating to himself in all of his creation. The reason that we come alive at these things is that the arts actually help us to understand the nature of God. They are a part of the overflow of his creation. The reason that you long for beauty so much is that you were made for God. It's a reflection of God. It's a calling, if you will, back home. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, scholars are actually a little divided on it. Some scholars believe that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Other scholars believe that a preacher acting like Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a, another to a topic for another day. But the Solomon character, whether it's Solomon or the preacher acting like Solomon, gives us some incredible insight here. Now, now, you have to understand Solomon, who he was. He was the king of Israel during the height of Israel. His father David had been king. This was a time of national peace. This was a time of global influence. It was a time of incredible wealth. Israel had land. They had money. They had recognition from the whole world. And God had given Solomon wisdom. He'd given him notoriety. He had everything someone could want. This is from 2 Chronicles 9, just to give you a picture 
It says, each year Solomon received 25 tons of gold, okay? What if like one day in your account, your bank account, 25 tons of gold just showed up every year? 25 tons of gold, that would be equal to, you know, depending on the price of gold, uh, you know, 1.25 to $1.5 billion a year just showing up in his account, okay? Pretty solid. Um, Verse 14, this did not include the additional revenue that he received from merchants and traders. So all of the trade going on, Solomon got a piece of that. All of the kings of Arabia and the governors in the provinces also brought gold and silver to Solomon. So it, it's untelling. We can't even really add up the kind of wealth that he had. Look at verse 21. This is interesting. The king also had a fleet of trading ships of Tarshish manned by the sailors sent from Hiram. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So every three years, Solomon got a windfall of wealth, including some peacocks. So this guy, I mean, he really had everything that you could want. Verse 22, King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth. Kings from every nation came to consult with him to hear the wisdom that God had given him. Year after year, everyone who visited him brought him gifts of silver, gold, clothing, weapons, spices, beauties, uh, or horses rather, and mules. So he had authority, he was the king, he had money, he lived in a beautiful palace, and he had incredible significance. I mean, everybody wanted to hear from him, and he had even more significance. Solomon was the king that gave the people the temple, the place where God, the Spirit of God, dwelled among the people. He had incredible significance. He had given the people the thing that they were spiritually the most proud of, and he was surrounded by beauty. Solomon famously had 300 wives, 700 concubines, beautiful women all around him. So this, this is the book by the man who had everything any human could ever want. And so you would, you would anticipate the thesis of Ecclesiastes to be life's good, <laughs> you know? Life is awesome. That would be the thesis you would anticipate. Billions of dollars of wealth coming in every year, beauty all around him, incredible significance, incredible supportance. But if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, what is the thesis? And it's really in the very beginning of the book, verse 2, vanity of vanities, <laughs> says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's great frustration in the book. I have money, I have women, I have a great house, I'm famous, I've done significant things, all is vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind. It's this realization that, that all of this is so temporary. It's not ultimately and deeply satisfying. Ecclesiastes 3.20, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Solomon is trying to make sense of everything. What does this mean? Where is joy found? Where is something that actually lasts? Where is a beauty that truly satisfies? And so let's look at verse 9. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, this is actually a reference to the curse. If you remember, God put the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to keep it. But when man sinned, when we fell away from God, work became hard. Work became filled with difficulty. If you have a job and your job is hard, that's not by accident. We were created to be with God, to enjoy God, to enjoy the ease and of union with God. 
In God, everything is right. Everything is as it should be. But when sin entered the world, thorns and thistles infested the ground. We would work by the sweat of our brows. Now we do this, right? We all do this. We endure the thorns. We endure the hard ground. We endure the hardness of things because why? We believe there's something beautiful at the end of it, right? We, what do we say at our work all the time? If I can just get to Friday, oh, it'll be great. If I can just get through this year, if I can just get through, past this deadline. Man, I do that all the time. I, I have a little date circle. If I can just get here, then, man, I will feel. And then you get there, and what? It never lasts. It's never ultimately satisfying. And this passage recognizes this. It, it, look at verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So despite the hardships of life, there are beautiful things. There are moments where everything seems right. There, there are moments where you do feel a sense of satisfaction. Everything seems in place. We can actually experience beauty, but it never lasts. You, know, you turn in the assignment, you finish the project, you close the deal, but it never lasts. You see the sunset that totally captures you. You're in awe in that moment of its beauty, but then the sunset doesn't last. You, know, you see that painting that's just wonderful. I, I have some memories of being a young man, going to a museum, seeing paintings, being captured by them, but I've gone back to some of those museums, and it's, it's never the same the second time. You know what I mean? It's never as capturous. It's never as good. It's like a good movie. I, I am always jealous of people that have seen a great movie that I love, but they haven't, they haven't seen a movie that I love. You know, like Shawshank Redemption. If Whenever I meet people that haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, I'm like, oh, I wish I was you. I wish, I wish I could go back and watch it again for the first time. I wish it could be as satisfying as it was that first time. See, Solomon understands this. God has made everything beautiful in his time, but he's also put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity. God has put eternity into the heart of every man. This, this verse makes so much sense to me. It's why we're so frustrated. <laughs> it's why we're not satisfied. God has put eternity in your heart. You have eternity in your heart. Whether, whether you believe this or not, you were made for God. You were made to know God and to delight in God. This is the thing that God wants from us, that we would know Him and that we would delight in Him. There, there is this thing in us that wants God. This is why you long for beauty. Because when you see something that is truly good and truly beautiful, it's like a glimmer. It's like a taste of God. It's, it's a signpost of what you were made for. Now, of course, this brings up some questions. What is it that makes something beautiful, right? What is, what, how do I know that I'm experiencing beauty? Like, is it beautiful just because it's popular? And the answer is no, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of aesthetical questions that would be great for a Covenant Institute course that I really don't have time to get to today, but just very simply here, something is beautiful. How do we understand beauty? The kind of beauty that changes you, that shapes you, that moves you. Something is beautiful only as it reflects God. Something becomes beautiful as it gives a reflection to who God is. So for example, 
the movie The Notebook, right? You've seen The Notebook. You love The Notebook. Why? Because it's about this enduring love, the man and the woman that love each other so much, that endure even, even through disease, even through heartache, even through all of these things, they, they come together at the end and they die in one another's embrace. I mean, Nicholas Sparks, the guy's a genius, but you love this. You love this because there's something about enduring love. There's something about a covenantal commitment. There's something about that that is right, right? You like that. Now, you also, some of you, like The Bachelor, you know. I know you do. You shouldn't, but you do, you know. Now, you have, you know, The Notebook over here, Enduring Love. You have The Bachelor over here. Now, you know when you watch The Bachelor, you know, you know that the guy doesn't really love her, all right? He's just made out with some other girl and told her that she's the most wonderful thing, and now he's with another girl 15 minutes later. You know that there's something wrong with this, right? You don't get to the end of The Bachelor and think, oh, man, that is what I want. <laughs> that, is, that is how I want to be pursued. No, you, you, you almost watch it because of its depravity, right? Both are popular, right? Both are popular. Both are about romance. One has a sense of beauty in it because it's reflecting something of the character and nature of God, the, the enduring covenant of love that He displays. That's actually what marriage is. It's a picture of that. It's a beautiful image of that. Have you all gone to Washington, D.C. and gone into the Lincoln Memorial? That's an amazing thing to do. You should do this if you've never done it. You walk up there, you read Lincoln's first inaugural, you read the Gettysburg Address, you see this amazing statue and you think about America and, and it's just this awe-inspiring moment right? It's popular. It's a thing people do. There's something in that that moves you. There's something in that that's true. And then, you know, some of you watch cable news, right? Both are political, right? One moves you, right? One has a sense of beauty about it. Both popular. One has a sense of enduring beauty. It's pointing to something that's good and true and right. You were made for this, when you experience beauty, it is a reminder of your true home. It's a reminder that you were made for the Lord. God has made everything beautiful in its time, but he's also put eternity into your heart. One of my Old Testament professors, Dwayne Garrett, says of this passage, we feel like aliens in the world of time and yearn to be a part of eternity we feel the need for ourselves and our work to be eternal, yet we are grieved to be trapped in time. We struggle with the end. We know there's something more. We, we know there's something bigger. God has placed eternity in the heart of man, but we are trapped in time. How do we break out? This is why this is so powerful. This is, Solomon knows there's more. He has everything. He knows there's more. He knows this is just a glimpse. It's why Solomon is so frustrated. And here's the deal. It's why we are so frustrated. So what is the answer, right? What is the answer to this question? How does the mortal and the immortal intersect, right? How does the human experience the divine? How does the temporary become permanent? How does beauty really last? And you know what the answer is? You know what the answer to this question is? The resurrection. <laughs> the answer is the gospel. 
This is what you have been looking for. This is what Solomon is looking for. This is what I am looking for. You and I were made to know God, to delight in him, but we, like, like our fathers Adam and Eve, have worshipped the created thing rather than the creator. One of the descriptions of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that it was a delight to the eyes. We so often do this. We see something that's a delight to the eyes, we begin to worship it. We begin to follow it. We begin to forget about God. This is, and the result of this sin, the result of disobedience to God, is that now we've been separated. The, the result of their sin in the garden was that they were separated from the presence of God. It's interesting. Because they followed this false beauty, they were taken away from true beauty. They were, they were withheld from the true beauty that they so longed for, that they so needed, that they were made for, that they so desired. And now as we see in Scripture, there's a veil really between us and God, so much so to the, the beauty that we experience. Now it's only glimpses. It's only little lights. It's only little shreds that, that pulls us in, but that only frustrates us because it seems so short. But here's the good news. Christ has come to restore all things. Jesus has come to bring sinners like you and me back into the presence of God, back into true beauty. Jesus has taken on all of our sin, all of our idolatry, all of our worshiping of false things, and he died for them. He put them to death on the cross. And of course, later Jesus overcame death. He rose from the dead to be reunited with his Father. And in Christ, through faith in Christ, the transcendence of God has touched us. The divine has come close to us so that we could come close to the divine. Now, now through faith in Jesus, we can actually come back into the very presence of God and experience his beauty. Jesus came so that we could know God and so that nothing could separate us from God. And here's the deal. More than that, Jesus has given you the Spirit of God. The very Spirit of God that has been active with the triune God from the very beginning of creation now indwells the lives of believers. The very Spirit of God that God put upon Bezalel to, to craft the Ark of the Covenant. The very Spirit of God that ministered to Jesus and that brought unity between Jesus and the Father during His earthly minister now indwells you. Which brings me to the last point is how do we participate in beauty? Now, we're really out of time for this. There's a lot more I wish I could say here. But I just want to give one more reflection on this passage. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I shared this little story with our Tuesday night group a few weeks ago. But there's this, there's this famous little short story that Tolkien, the guy that wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, that Tolkien wrote called Leaf by Niggle. And it's a short story. You could read it in less than an hour this afternoon, in 30 minutes. And um, it's about this little guy named Niggle. And it's, it's, it's about this whole idea, uh, the frustration that we have in creation and with our work and the temporary nature of it. And so Niggle has this great idea that he's going to paint He's a painter. He's going to paint this beautiful tree. It's going to be his masterpiece. It's going to be remembered, right? It's his big work. So he gets to work at painting. We all have these things, right? I'm going to do this. This is my contribution. This is what I'm going to put forward for people. He gets to painting. He's got this neighbor. 
He's always needing something. So he goes and helps his neighbor, and he has to come down off his ladder. And then his town has a need for this, and he has to go help the people in his town. And he's always distracted. And at one point, the people in his town, they actually even take part of his painting and use it to repair a roof, right? The worst thing that could happen to your painting, you know? Pro tip, don't use a painting's, an artist's work to repair a roof, okay? He's so frustrated, and he knows that he has this journey coming, and in the story, the journey is analogous to death, right? He's going to die. And finally, the journey comes, and all he's completed in his whole life, (laughs) this grand tree that he was going to make, all he's completed was one leaf. That's all he got done of his grand tree. So he gets on the train, he's heading off on his journey, which is, you know, he's kind of dying, right? He's, he's going to God. And he looks out the window of the train, and he sees not just his tree, but a whole forest of trees. His tree is complete. His tree is done. It's made, and it's, it's among many trees. It's a whole forest. God has taken his little thing, his little leaf, and he's made it full and he's made it right. You know, I, this is the kind of thing that gives me actual rest as I work, as I try to create, as I try to parent. How often do I feel like all I've done is just this little leaf? This is nothing like I wanted to do here. I'm not the parent that I want to be. I'm not the pastor that I want to be. I don't make disciples like I want to. I'm not the husband that I want to be. I always get distracted. I never get to really do. And I feel like God has given me so much. But you know what? I trust the Lord. I trust that that this is not my plan. I, I am just a part of God's plan. As the Spirit is leading my life, I can take comfort that I'm not really in control. I was made to know God, and that in Christ I can know God, and I will know God, and He is my Father, and the protector and the sustainer of my life. And so all of my little offerings, as imperfect as they are, can be made whole and right and complete and good, that God is doing something great with them. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And in Christ, I can experience the fullness of those things in eternity. That is satisfying beauty. That is lasting beauty. That is true beauty that pleases the Lord and that grants us enormous peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we think about the glimpses of beauty that you, that you make us privy to, that you allow us to see, I pray that they would turn our hearts to Jesus, they would turn our hearts to you, Lord, that they would just be reflections of you. I pray, Father, even now that the frustration of you putting eternity into our hearts would lead us to faith, would lead us to look to Jesus, the one who's overcome 
death, the one who's overcome endings, the one who's overcome time and has invited us, Lord, into just the endless enjoyment of you, into satisfaction, into life, into peace. May we look to him now. May we trust him now. May we be convicted of our sin, of our worshiping of created things. And would you turn us in Christ to the worship of the Creator? And I pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.